We turn together to the book of Micah. Micah is one of the last of the Old Testament prophets in terms of where it's placed in your Bible. It's nearly in the middle of your Bible. If you find the Psalms, and you can keep turning to the right. If you find Matthew, you can turn to the left a bit. And we're going to be looking this morning at Micah chapter 6, focusing specifically on verse 8. But what I would like to do is to read verses 6 and 7 as well for some context. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient for our faith and life. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Micah, chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon us. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning as a people who are in need of your wisdom. But Lord, we are in need of more than your wisdom. We are in need of your presence and of your power. And we are in need this morning, O oh Lord, of your pardon. Forgive us. Show us the way. Bring us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, O Father. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning is the last sermon in this series on Christian living in a post-Christian world. Next week we will hear again from the book of Hebrews from Dr. Rankin. And then two Sundays from now, we will begin what I think will be another long journey for us in the book of Luke. And as you may recall, previous to this series, we had been in the book of Genesis, and I wanted to take a a little break between two long narrative books of Scripture and try to think of something that would would be helpful and would be immediate for you and for me as we think about living in the world today. We know that the world is a place that has changed, hasn't it? For many of us, we grew up in a place where the world was Christian. And I use that in quotes intentionally. 
30 or 40 or 50 years ago, the world was different. There was a difference in the public face of how people interacted. There was far more of a, of a Christian veneer on society. There were certain things that if you would have asked us 30 or 40 years ago, do you think this will happen? We would have said, oh, there's no way that would ever happen. That's crazy. No one will ever have those kinds of opinions. That will never be mainstream. And now here, of course, it is. But even though the world has changed, it hasn't really changed that much because this is the story of the world throughout the ages. There was, of course, years ago, the the God is dead movement. God may have been around, but he doesn't matter much anymore. And now today it seems to have gone even to the new extreme. People don't even ask if God is dead. People never even question if God is around. God doesn't matter anymore in our society. And you see this even in the way that the church has had to interact with people out in the world. One of the most prominent methods of evangelism has become nearly useless. Some of you may recall the old evangelism explosion methods where you would walk up to someone and you would say, if you were to die tonight and to be taken before the gates of heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you in? What would you say? You can't ask that anymore because someone says, I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe there's anything after that. There's no God. It doesn't matter what I do. Why are you asking me these questions? What's right and wrong? Who are you to say what? And you never even get into the batter's box, let alone the first base. There are, of course, contributing factors here today. Technology is ubiquitous. It is everywhere we look. And technology helps us to live better lives, but it also it masks the fact that we are finite and we don't have everything that we need. Parents remember this easily from the way that children ask questions. When I asked my parents a question years ago, they weren't expected to have every answer. Why does the moon go through phases? What are tides? Why do the leaves fall off in the fall? Now... You pull out one of five devices and you have 15 answers at your fingertips. We know everything, don't we? Or at least we think we do. We don't have difficult journeys anymore. We complain because when we take quick jetline airliner rides across the world, we're not allowed to have our phones on during the entirety of the flight. It's a far cry from a few hundred years ago when people would travel a few hundred miles and risk their lives. You see, the world has changed because technology is there. But technology also contributes to another change, and that is that there are superficial connections with people. I want to ask you a hard question to think about. When was the last time you had a good, honest, lengthy conversation with someone that wasn't on a phone, that wasn't over video chat, that wasn't over email or IM or text or Facebook. You see, 
I know that I have more than a thousand friends. Facebook tells me so. Until one of the days when I'm looking at it on my computer and one of my children comes up and says, Dad, who's that? And I say, I'm not really sure. But they're your friend on Facebook. Well, I think they got my name because they're friends with someone I'm friends with. And I don't like to turn people down. You see, this is the way our society runs now, isn't it? And we also see the breakdown of the family in our midst, don't we? And I don't just mean the ever-present shadow of divorce. I mean generations ago, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents all lived within walking distance of one another. Today, my children are fortunate to be able to see their cousins once a year. The world has changed. Well, the question then comes to you and to me, so what? What does it matter that the world has changed? The reason it matters is because the world is now a place where people think we do not need God. We can get along just fine without God. As long as we have Internet access, a device, and power, we'll be just fine. Thank you. But the truth is God is very much alive and that God matters. And we have to think about not so much our comfort anymore as a part of the church of Jesus Christ, but we need to think about how we can show that God does matter to others around us. If we think about it, opportunities are here in front of us each and every day that we can seize. Our society that we all lament with the divorce and sexual immorality and theft and wars is actually very much like Bible days. The newspapers of the Jerusalem Post of 30 A.D. would sound very much like our newspapers. And you see, we have an opportunity to seize, to show the difference that Jesus Christ makes in the life of the church and of you and of me. And that's what this series has all been about. I don't know if you've had an opportunity yet to piece together the pieces and parts. You may have wondered, I wonder why Fred picked this topic or that topic or the other topic. I've preached on things like respecting authority in a scornful world. Which is really another way of saying the fifth commandment applies to you today. I've talked about watching your language. Which is a way of saying that following the third commandment of not taking the Lord's name in vain has an effect on how others see us. We've talked about purity in an impure world. Which speaks to the seventh commandment. And to keep purity in our relationships. We talked about stewardship in a spendthrift world, which speaks of managing our funds as wise stewards according to the Eighth Commandment. Contentment in a dissatisfied world and avoiding coveting and following the Tenth Commandment. Hard work in a lazy world following the Fourth Commandment. You see, the Ten Commandments are applicable for you and me today, not as a mechanism to get us into God's good graces, but they are there for us as a blueprint to follow of how a life of joy and peace comes because of the work of the Lord in our lives. People may think we don't need God, 
But the opportunity exists right now today for you to show them that they are wrong, and they do. But there is a challenge in the church also, in this world that is filled with pride, because pride doesn't stop at the door to the church. You see, the responsibility lies with you and me as well, because after all, we are the messengers for the gospel. And if the message is changed, we are the ones who have changed it. We are the ones who have taken shortcuts. We are the ones that have tried to skirt around the edges and to make our lives more comfortable at the expense of the gospel. It's like teaching your children to do things. There are two ways that you can do it. You can teach them the slow it's sometimes hard and painful way. Going step by step, explaining everything in great detail so they catch on. Or you can take the shortcut. And so just let me do that. Well, how did you do that? Don't worry about that now. Let's just get this done. I have to confess that that's often how I teach my children. As I try and explain to them various things to do with computers. After a while, my, my impatience gets the better of me. And I say, well, let's just do this. Why do we do that? Don't worry about that now. Worry about that later. Well, when is later? When is later for you and your relationships with others? Because you see, if we take those kinds of shortcuts, if we say to people, well, you need to be in a good marriage. Why? Oh, don't worry about that. It's just because it's important. You keep saying that. People don't think you need to be in a good marriage. If you say you need to work and be honest and tell the truth, and they say, wow, well, oh, just because it make you a good person. Don't worry about that. That people won't work and be honest. You see, following God's law is not about just putting up a good front. It is not about just thinking that we have it all pulled together. Following God's law is about giving glory to God. At being thankful for the way that he has blessed us. And the church is too often looking for conversions rather than making disciples. And so we think we can please God as the church. We have a very low view of God. We become the measure of all things. We decide what God requires we judge God by how good our lives are, when in reality, the problem is we have too high a view of us. We think we can do it. So we make up our list. These are the things that you must do. And the list may change, but it's still a list. And it becomes a failure to understand the grace of God. To understand our true inability is only resolved by God's grace. God's demands are not met by lowering them, but by realizing that God meets his demands in Christ Jesus. You see, this world of pride that is around us is not just out there. It is in here as well with you and with me. And the solution for this, Micah says, is to look beyond ourselves, to look beyond the self. And he gives us these three 
directives in verse 8. That what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Commentators call this the summary of the Old Testament in one verse. And you see, it begins with God. It's not just about what we do. What does the Lord require of you, the text says. You see, it begins with God. He is the one who has spoken. He tells us. He takes the time to explain to us the way the world works. And he tells it to every single person. Do you see this? He says, oh man. Now that's not just an Old Testament interjection. And it does include the ladies. And the kids. And even the babies. You see, what Micah is saying is, this is what God requires of all of his creatures, of every person who exists. God requires of it. And he has a standard. What he requires, he tells us what is good. We don't get to decide what is a good and right standard. There's far too much of that, isn't there? We cannot trust ourselves because Our standards fluctuate. Let me ask you this question. Would $2.50 be inexpensive for gasoline? How many of you would like to pay $2.50 today? Do you remember several years ago the hue and outcry because gasoline went above a dollar and a half? But now... We would love to have 250. Has gasoline changed? No, what's happened? Our standards have changed. We've become used to certain things. And this is also what happens in the world before us. We have become used to sin. We have become used to getting our own way. We have become used to being prideful. And God says, my standards don't change. I have laid down what is good. And we need to avoid here the twin mistakes that stand before us. Either the error of saying, it does not matter what I do. God will love me no matter what I do. I can lie all I want, cheat all I want, steal all I want, and God will forgive me. Or the other error that says it only matters what I do. I have to be so careful what I do or God won't love me. When the truth in Jesus Christ is, is that God loves us in Christ and then he expects gratitude and change. Because he has brought about the change. He expects us to be active. To do justice, Micah says. Doesn't that ring a little odd in your ears? We think about seeing justice or knowing justice. But Micah says we are to do justice. That means we must be active. We must be truthful in our words. We must have integrity in our actions. And you see, this does not admit degrees. You can't be mostly just. That's like saying you drink water that's only a little bit sewage. Who here wants to volunteer for 1% sewage water? 
It is something that is made up in our being because of what the work of God is doing in our lives. And it is active. It is not just talk. The church has a problem today. And that is that it thinks it can do justice by talking about justice. You see, the church thinks that just simply speaking and thinking about things make them so. But that's not what God says. But you see, for some of us, we take it to the next level. And it's not just talking about it. Justice is about something that we need to get others to do. And we go to rallies downtown. And we fashion up clever rhymes about justice and what other people should do and how other people should treat things and what others should do for me. When in reality, what the Scripture tells us is justice begins with you and with me. Don't start by worrying about others. Start by doing justice yourself. By thinking about the weak. By having integrity in your actions. You see, this shows the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. And it's important because we confess that God is just. And if God is just, shouldn't his people be? Shouldn't it be a natural consequence of being redeemed to be more concerned and active in justice? It shows the world that our faith is real, that it is important to us. And if we don't do this, who will? Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will not do justice, you who are bought by the precious blood of Christ and empowered by the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, and who know the love of the Father showered upon you, if you cannot do justice, how can you expect someone else to? They're not equipped for it. They don't even know what it is. And so as the people of God, we are called to declare to the community around us that God is good and that He has changed us and He can change them too. But it's not just in action that we should look beyond ourselves. We also need to look beyond ourselves in principle. And that's what Micah gets at in the second part of that phrase. We are not just to do justice, but to love kindness. And again here, this is a phrase that seems odd. What does this mean? Shouldn't we just be loving one another? Why would we love kindness? Well, part of the problem is with this word, kindness. This is almost... A kitchen sink kind of word. If you can think of about every good thing, it could be poured into this word. This word does indeed mean kindness. It's also the word that is used to mean God's mercy to us. It also means faithfulness, the faithfulness of God to his people. And it is a covenant faithfulness. It's a faithfulness in relationship. It is about being committed to others, showing others mercy, putting others first. It is, if we might encapsulate it, it is the evidences of grace in our life. 
And Micah says, you must love this. You must love God's mercy and grace and faithfulness and how He thinks of you before Himself. Have you thought about that aspect of Jesus? That Jesus thought of you. I don't mean people in general. I don't mean Palestinians in the first century. I mean if you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, He thought particularly of you more than Himself. And He was willing to suffer and die for you. And you see, this is the kind of attitude that we must have as followers of Jesus. As we desire to be more and more like Christ, we must, as a principle of our lives, we must think of others first. That's one great definition of humility, isn't it? You put others first. Think about how different that is in our world today. No one puts anyone else first. When was the last time that you were cut in line? It was probably this month. If it wasn't on foot, it was in a car, right? No one waits their turn anymore. It used to be you could drive and you knew it was every other car. Now no one waits. They just cut in line. Ladies, who opens doors anymore? Now you hope that when someone goes in ahead of you, they swing the door open wide enough so that you can hustle in before it closes. We live in a world of me, 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 and me first. And think of the wonderful opportunity for the Christian by putting others first to say, I can be patient. God is good. I can be merciful. God is good. I can be trusting. God is good. Think of the opportunities that you will have to testify to the difference that the Lord Jesus Christ makes in your life. Let me ask you a very practical question. Which is an easier witnessing tool? To memorize the book of Romans or to treat people with kindness, mercy, and love? You see, every single day we have that opportunity. We don't even need to talk to someone to have that opportunity. This is what it means to be salt and light in a world. And if we are not willing to do this, it shows that we have lost our sight or perhaps even that we do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. For John puts it this way in his first letter, the third chapter. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? You see, John's saying, if you're not willing to share, if you're not willing to love, how do you even know that you really know Jesus? Because you should be being more and more like Jesus each and every day. And that's the defining characteristic of Jesus. And you see, it's not just that we should show this mercy, not just that we should find some occasions. You see, Micah says we need to love it. Now, this sounds odd at first, but I want you to think about this in a context that's very practical for us. I want you to think right now about your absolutely favorite food. 
Not just something you like. Not just something you go and you'll pick that choice out of the menu. I mean, if you have a choice of anything, this is what you want. A juicy steak. A chocolate cake this high. And how, right now, you're starting to drool just thinking about it. Because you love it. You want to get it. You're starting now to plan how you can make a stop somewhere this week to get that. That's how God wants you to love mercy and kindness. To long for it. To salivate for it. To plan out your day and your week so you can show it. This is what it means to look beyond ourselves. And then thirdly and finally... Micah finishes by saying, the third thing is to walk humbly with your God. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean to walk around with our eyes on the ground? Does it mean to walk around saying bad things about ourselves so we don't think too highly of ourselves? I don't think so. I think it really means two things. First and foremost, That we are aware of God's presence in our lives. And then secondly, that we are conforming to God's will. So we need to live lives aware that God is present. That sounds very easy, isn't it? It sounds like something that we ought to do and is elementary for the Christian. But I want you to think about how radical a change that makes in our lives. Would you steal something if Jesus were standing next to you? Would you avert your eyes and pass by someone in need if Jesus were right next to you? You see, we act all the time like God isn't present. Like we somehow can send God to his room. And so we can act how we want to act. And it's sort of like The bad commercial cliche. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens outside of God's presence stays out of God's presence. And we don't need to worry about that anymore. But you see, if we live lives that are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are humble before Him, we realize that we are in God's presence all the time. It is one thing to talk about this again, but it is another to live it. There is a wonderful Latin phrase that you should learn, because it's good for you. It's called Coram Deo. And what it means is, before the face of God. You are living all of your life before the face of God. When you eat, when you sleep, when you speak, when you are on the computer, when you watch things. Everything you do is before God's face. And that's why Micah uses this term, walk humbly with your God. Because It's not just an activity that we are to do humbly before our God. It's not just pray humbly before your God. It's not just listen humbly before your God. It is walk and live all of your life. Everything that you do is before God. And not just God generically. Do you see who God is here in this text? We are to walk humbly with your God. Not a God, 
Not even the God. Your God. This is covenantal language here. You see, you're not walking on your own. You don't have to do this in your own strength. You don't have to muster up the courage and the ability so that somehow that God will love you. He is your God already. And because He is your God, you can walk humbly with Him. This is the fundamental difference between justification and sanctification. Between being forgiven and then more and more being holy in the image of Jesus. We need God's grace for both. But being right with God is a one-time act that gives us the grace and the power that we need to go through the life of holiness and following Jesus. This is true for each and every one of us. There is not a one of us who is exempt from this. He doesn't say pastors walk humbly. He doesn't say elders walk humbly. Deacons walk humbly. Men walk humbly. Leaders walk humbly. He says, this is what your God says to you, O man. Each and every one of you walk humbly with your God. To be aware of His presence. And then lastly, what true humility means is to conform to God's will. It's to say that what I want is not ultimate. The world doesn't revolve around me. All of my needs don't need to be met. All of my opinions don't need to be validated. All of my desires do not need to be answered. And if we think about it, that is the world that we live in. When even the smallest of things goes awry, There is spite and vindictive attitudes and anger and vitriol and fighting. And we don't just see it in politics. We see it in classrooms. We see it in neighborhoods. We see it in families. We see it everywhere where everyone thinks that what I want is most important. And what the scripture tells us in this little summary of all of the truth of God's word is that it is God's will. That is critical. Not ours. And you see, this is not about one specific action. It's not about one little thing. It is about a lifelong commitment to putting the Lord first and His demands. This is humility. It is intentional. It is attentive. It is careful. And it is doing God's will. Not mine. It's very short, isn't it? You can even memorize this verse. But if we think about it, it does summarize all that makes the difference between the people of God and those who are lost. You see, the people of God desire God's will, not their own. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because isn't that exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ said in the most critical moment of his life. Father, let this cup pass me by. But nevertheless, thy will, not mine, be done. You will face crises in your life. 
You will face challenges. You will want with every fiber of your being to have your will be done. Remember that you are not your own. You are bought with a price. And that price allows you to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You, O Lord, are merciful and loving and good. And yet, Lord, You are also just and perfect and holy. And so we thank You, Lord, that You have made provision in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might follow after You, that we might be changed, that we might be renewed. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that You would continue that work of change in each and every one of us that has claimed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we further ask, O Lord, that if there is anyone here within the sound of my voice that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that has not committed all that they are to Him, that You, O Lord, would enter into their lives and show them the good. Show them Your will. Show them forgiveness. Be with us, O Lord. You have promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Remind us of the sweet, sweet promise that is. This we ask in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.